there's, there's really two kinds of love stories, right? Two major categories of love stories that captivate the hearts of people. The first one is what I would call happy, sappy love stories, right? And you know what those are. Those are like, think of this. They're the, the two characters in the story overcome insurmountable odds and finally manage to live happily ever after in spite of everything. And it ends on a high note. So think about Beauty and the Beast, right? I mean, this this uh, beautiful, young, uh, innocent girl happens to fall in love, as, as one would, you know, with a vicious man-eating beast. And uh, they overcome insurmountable odds in order to live happily ever after. That's the idea of that happy, sappy love story. It's like anything with Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan, that kind of thing that we're talking about. Or The Notebook, or my, my uh, family's, uh, when I say my family, I mean the females in my family. Favorite movie, Pride and Prejudice. You know, guys, I got to tell you, um, I've seen... 33 versions of Pride and Prejudice in my house. So uh, hang in there. Uh, sometimes we have to put up with those kind of things because that's love. Or how about this? Every Hallmark movie ever made, right? It's not just Christmas, but Valentine's Day. We get these kind of movies. And I don't know about you, but those things are playing in my house. So that's the first category of love stories, the happy, sappy ones, right? But there's another category of love stories that moves the hearts of people, and those are the tragic love stories. So think Romeo and Juliet, right? And those of you who never read Shakespeare, think West Side Story, because it's the same story. And, uh, you know, it's like these lovers come, overcome odds, and they're about to get to, oh, and then they die. That's kind of what happens in the tragic ones. So a recently Academy Award movie, A Star is Born, same kind of thing. They, they fight odds and then somebody dies and it doesn't work out. But really probably in most of our lifetimes, the number one story that fits this category is a little movie with a young Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet called Titanic. It's a movie where you knew before you went how the story ended, and yet they, t they managed to make a, st a story about the worst shipwreck ever and make you forget about the shipwreck and just focus on the love between the two main characters. So there are um, sappy, happy love stories, and there are tragic love stories. And if you had the chance to choose which of those kinds of love stories you want to live out, which one would you choose? I'm guessing you would choose the happy, sappy ones. But the problem is the characters in these stories don't get to choose. It's the circumstances that they're in that sort of determine how the story goes. Well, you may or may not realize this, but you, you, are right now, right in the middle of the greatest love story of all time. And as Christians, we actually get a say in how the story ends up. Let me show you what I mean. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of the Revelation. Now, the Revelation is in the very back of your Bible. Most of you know that. Just go all the way to the back. If you get to the maps, you went too far. But other than that, you, you'll find it right at the end. And I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 1. And while you're turning there, let me just tell you how this works. 
You have the Apostle John. He's been banished to a deserted island called Patmos. He's on the island of Patmos. And while he's worshiping God, he has a vision where the glorified Christ is revealed to him. And he gets this message, which is the rest of the book of the Revelation, right? So pick it up with me in verse 10. John, I mean, Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, to Pergamum and Thyatira and to Sardis and Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it's been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters." In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death, and of Hades. And so, as our love story begins, we meet our protagonist. He is a handsome prince. He is a dashing groom, right? And we meet him, and he is about to have a message for his beautiful, blushing bride, which, by the way, is the church. That's us. And the bride of Christ is represented here by these seven churches that are mentioned in verse 11. And our focus today is going to be on the message that he gives to the church at Ephesus. So join me in Revelation chapter 2 as we pick it up in verse 1. To the angel of the, of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance, and have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. Isn't that awesome? Would you not love if Jesus had that to say to you? The, these wonderful compliments that he's pouring out to the Ephesian Christians, these are things that Jesus is proud of, right? Look at this. Uh, your deeds, your toil, your perseverance. You don't tolerate evil men. You put them to the test when they have false uh, statements. You have perseverance. You have endurance. And you have not grown weary. Like this is Jesus going, great job, church. I'm so proud of you. You've done an amazing, amazing job. This must be then one of those happy love stories, right? Well, you might have stopped reading too soon. Pick it up with me in verse four. 
But, but, he says, I have this against you. That you have left your first love. So, so listen, Ephesian Christians, you got all this going for you. Your doctrine is right. You've got great perseverance. You've endured the right things and been unwilling to endure the wrong things. You, you put uh, false teachers to the test. You don't put up with uh, any kind of Mickey Mouse doctrine. Everything that you've been doing with your deeds has been amazing. But I have this against you. You've lost your first love. That's bad news, guys. And it's so bad that it dwarfs in importance the good news that we saw in the previous couple of verses. Love is super important to God. How important is it? Well, I, you know the love chapter, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Turn over there. Just leave your finger there in a revelation and turn over with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now, I know you've been to weddings and you've heard this passage read starting in verse 3, but we're not going to start uh, in verse 3. We're going to start in verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Before he begins to define love, he talks about the importance of love. Here we go. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but I do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Think about this. So let's just break this down verse by verse, those, those three verses. First of all, verse 1. It says, you know what? If you speak in tongues, you, you have this, this heavenly gift of being able to speak in other languages. But you don't have love. You're just making noise. Now, think about this for a second. Do you know how many churches have split and how many Christians have cut off fellowship from one another over arguments about this issue of the gift of tongues? It, it seems like it's had the opposite impact on the church than it was supposed to. And, and without love... It's caused the church to crumble, disintegrate in many ways. Now listen, this is an important topic. What is the gift of tongues? How does it work? Is it still operational today? And if so, how? Those are legitimate questions. Those are important questions. It's an important topic. But it pales in comparison. It's meaningless when you compare it to the issue of love. And it's astonishing to me how easy it is for us as Christians to take these other things and elevate them to this high place and leave love behind. God says if you do that, you're in trouble. Verse 2, look at it again with me. If I have the gift of prophecy, if I know all mysteries and all knowledge, right? The Ephesian church was just complimented for how they stick to the truth. They teach the truth. They will not put up with those who don't teach the truth, right? Truth, 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 truth. The Ephesian church is great on doctrine. 
And yet it says here, if you got all the truth right, you have all the prophecy right, all the knowledge right, all the faith right, but you do not have love, you got nothing. Verse 3, if I give all my possessions to the poor and if I surrender my body to be burned, but I do not have love, it profits me nothing. Some people are fearless when it comes to standing up for their faith. Some people are willing to pay any price. They're willing to make any sacrifice for God. They will never deny him. And if it means that they have to be put to death or tortured, so be it. Now, th this is a thing that is very hard for us to relate to in Western Christianity. But do you know that martyrdom around the world is at a higher point today than it's ever been in the history of the world? People are being martyred, put to death, tortured because they love Jesus. He says, you could be that committed, but if you don't have love, what difference does it make? Apparently, love's a really big deal to God. It's almost like in God's economy, it's always Valentine's Day. It's always the day when everything else should be set aside and love be put at the center of the stage. Love is the most important thing. When they pressed Jesus, they said, hey, uh, we want to know out of the whole teaching of the scripture, what's the most important thing? What did Jesus say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. In God's economy, love is the most valuable commodity. <laughs> In heaven, apparently, gold is so meaningless that they pave the streets with it. But love is at the top of the priority list of God. My friends, love is a really big deal to God. And for that reason, it needs to be a really big deal to us. So when Jesus says that the Ephesian Christians has, have lost their first love, he's saying something very, very significant. It's a huge, huge indictment. And, and by the way, the translation I just read to you in the New American Standard as we get back to uh, Revelation, uh, the translation of the New American Standard is a little bit confusing, right? He says, um, I have this against you that you have left your first love. I really prefer the English Standard Version translation where it says, you have abandoned the love that you had at first. And let me tell you why I'm making this distinction. Um, when we think of a first love, we're usually thinking of a person, oh, she was my first love. But that's not the way it is here in the Greek. Um, in the Greek, the, the word for love here is not a noun, it's a verb, agape or agapeo, right? And, and so he's talking about love as something you do, not as the object, but as the action, so the idea is not that you have lost someone that you loved. The idea is that you have stopped loving someone. That you have stopped um, the act of loving somebody. So Jesus is saying that the Ephesian believers have stopped loving him like they used to. Jesus has somehow become no longer their passion. He has, he has somehow... Um, become no longer their focus. 
He's become no longer the first thought they have when they wake up and the last thing they think about when they go to bed. Um, the one they can't get enough of. He's not that to them anymore. Somehow, Jesus has been replaced in their hearts by something or someone else. So, let's recap. They had the right doctrine. They followed all the rules. They were doing lots of good things. But Jesus was no longer the passion of their lives. And to Jesus, that was unacceptable. Whew, that's convicting, isn't it? Because to Jesus, it's a big deal. To Jesus, that makes his relationship with the church a potentially tragic love story. He says, this has to change. And if it doesn't change, he's literally telling the Ephesian church, if it doesn't change, I'm going to snuff you out as a church. You're going to stop representing me in the world. I'm going to put you aside as a church if this doesn't change. Remember, he's speaking to a local church here, the whole congregation. He's speaking to them collectively. And, and obviously the same message would come through to individual Christians. It would come through to individual um, congregations. And it might even come through to the whole church universal as a whole. Have you lost your first love? That would be the question God's asking us because we're all in this together. So what is a group of Christians to do or, or what is even an individual Christian to do when they realize they have abandoned their passion for Jesus? Well, thankfully, Jesus himself gives us the answer here in verse five. Join me again. Uh, Revelation chapter two, verse five. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I am coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. The lampstand is the symbol of the church. I'm going to remove your lampstand, he says. You're going to stop being my church if you don't do something about this love issue. That's terrifying. It's terrifying to think that a congregation could fall so far from the middle of God's will. It's terrifying to think that an individual person who once was on fire for Jesus could now be lukewarm. But he says that's exactly what's happening in Ephesus. And if it doesn't change, it's going to end in disaster. How does that happen? How does that happen in the life of a Christian? How does that happen in the life of a church? How does a, a Christian or a congregation fall away from their love for Jesus? How does it happen? One step at a time. One step at a time. I, I wouldn't say we so much fall away as we walk away. It happens one step at a time. Let me illustrate this. You know, a lot of the illustrations that are from my own life, uh, I'm not very heroic in these things. So let me just be honest and real with you and tell you a story. Um, I, I grew up, I was raised in the car business. My dad owned car dealerships. I, I, I spent my childhood on washing cars on used car lots. That's kind of how I was raised. And I sold my first car when I was 14 years old. And 
uh, I was sort of baptized into the car business, whether I like it or not. And I came to know Christ at, uh, in my early teenage years, and I, and I made ministry my priority, and I walked with Jesus, and I, and I was passionate about him and all that kind of stuff. But when I got married, in, in order to feed my family, I had to earn a living, and I did that in the car business, right? And we owned a, a, a family-owned car dealership, and uh, I worked there. My brother, Eric, worked there, who also was walking with Christ. Um, and then my older brother worked there. My father worked there. Uh, and, and part of my joy of working there with my family was that I got to be a witness to them. But I don't know what it's like in your business, but I can tell you that when I was in the car business, uh, you know, when, when people are just there by themselves, the workers... The language gets a little crass. Things get a little worldly. gets a little rough. And I found that I was just sort of getting sucked down into the vortex of that. And I remember one day in particular, I was sitting there with my dad and my brother, the people I was trying to really share the love of Jesus with. And I was sitting there with them and I made some off-color comment with some foul language and that had just become normal for me at work. And my brother, in order to tease me, looked at my dad and he said this, remember when Doug used to be a nice Christian guy? And my heart just sank to the bottom of my stomach. And I realized that gradually, little by little by little, my passion for Christ had waned and had been replaced by worldliness. It's easy to get distracted in this world. So let me ask you a question. How's your love life? Are you pouring your whole heart into a passionate love relationship with Jesus? Or has the world stolen your attention and your devotion? You can't have it both ways, you know? Let, let me read to you from 1 John. If you're in Revelation and you just turn back to the left a couple of pages, you come to 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, let me read it to you real quick. Beginning in verse 15. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, when it's talking about the world, it's not talking about people in the world. It's talking about the world system and the things of this world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. John says you can't love the world and love God. You can't love the world system. You can't love the values of the world. You can't love the things of the world and fully love Jesus. You have to decide where is your devotion going to lie? So let me ask you again. How's your love life? Is your heart focused on Jesus? Or has your eye strayed to the shiny things of this world? Are you standing on the rock? Or are you drifting with the tide? Are you so comfortable in your relationship with Jesus that you're just going through the motions of your faith at this point? Or are you captivated by a heart of worship for him? 
If you're like me, those are convicting questions. So what can we do? We find ourselves drifting from our first love. What do we do? Jesus answered that question for us in verse 5. Three things. Real quick, remember. Number one, remember. Remember. He says, remember. Go back to verse 5. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen. Retrace your steps. Go back to the way it once was in your mind. Start to focus on him again. Christianity is first and foremost a relationship of love with Jesus. Praise him for who he is. Make worship a regular part of your life, not 20 minutes on Sunday morning. Spend time with him. And when you spend time with him, give him your full attention. Think about what it was like when you were amazed by his grace, when you were astounded by his love for you, when you were astonished by the fact that he could care for you so much. Number one, remember, remember. Number two, repent. Repent. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent. That's a harsh word. We don't like to use that word in church anymore because it offends people. It implies that somehow you might be in the wrong. Well, I'm sorry to ruffle your feathers, but I got to tell you something, cupcake. You might be in the wrong. And if you are, the answer is repentance. We have to actually turn from our sin. It's a strong word. It's an uncomfortable word, but it's exactly the right word. Change your mind. Change your focus. Change your course, your direction. I love Philippians 4, 8 where it talks about whatever is good, whatever is true, whatever is honorable and so on. Let your mind dwell on these things. Do you realize the battle is fought between your ears? What are you focusing on? What's got your attention? So remember, return, and finally, uh, remember, repent, and finally return. Get back to doing the things you did at first. This is not about emotion. This is intensely practical. This is about action. Jesus is not telling us to just feel bad, to just be sorry that we've walked away from our love relationship with him. He is calling us to do what we did at first. Worship, witness, serve, love others. Those are the things that he's calling us to be about. And you know what, guys? Love is an action far more than it's an emotion. And so when you don't feel like it, do it anyway. Go back to being about the things that God says are important. How do we change the world? By loving God and loving people. It's all about love. Without love, there is no Christianity. You don't have to become wishy-washy. I'm not talking about laying aside truth. Remember, he commended them for their devotion to truth. But all the truth in the world falls on deaf ears. If it's not wrapped in a package and laid on a foundation of love. Love for God. Love for people. And if you're listening to this message today, but you realize that, that you know, you might have had some religious awareness or, or some religious upbringing, but you don't really have a love relationship with Jesus, I want you to know 
all of that can change right here and right now. All you have to do is say yes to the free gift of grace. All you have to do is invite Christ to be your Lord and Savior. Yes, you have to repent. You got to turn from your sin. You have to admit that you're a sinner and you have to let him be Lord of your life. But oh, if you do, the love that you will experience, the meaning that your life will have, it's available to you right now. It's as simple as a prayer. You can do it in the silence of your own heart, in the, in the quiet of your own living room. You can say, Lord Jesus, I've walked away from you. I haven't had this love relationship with you. I have walked in my own sin. I've gone after the things of the world when I should have loved you. Oh, Jesus, I accept your free gift of salvation, which you paid for on the cross. Come into my heart. Be my Lord and Savior, and he'll set you free. You'll be born again, and love will be the cornerstone of your life. You can do that today, right where you are. Maybe today is the day for you to accept that love relationship with Jesus that he died to give you. Let's pray together. Father, we want to say thank you that your love is enough. Thank you that you haven't left us abandoned even when we chased after the things of this world. Thank you, God, that your love is so great that you sent your only son that whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Thank you, Jesus for the incredible sacrifice of the cross. Let us walk in that kind of love, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Happy Valentine's Day. You are loved. <laughs>